0: Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, the Second World War podcast for all your Second World War needs. Um, James, we're delighted to be joined by a guest today. So over to you.
1: Well, yeah, old friend, um, Claire Mully, and she's uh, a wonderful historian and she's done a a number of books, particularly sort of charting fascinating women in the war, people who've saved children, people who flew for the Führer. But I guess the one that kind of really uh, always intrigues me more than any other is the the spy who loved the secrets and lives of one of Britain's bravest wartime heroines. And if you're wondering who that is, she was known as many different... I mean, she's a Polish lady, um, known to many as Christine Granville, but has a much more um, exotic name. And I've got to say, Claire, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for coming on and, and welcome. I remember back in a former life when I used to work in publishing... I was working for Penguin Books at Wrights Lane in High Street Kensington, and I am guessing this must have been about nineteen ninety seven, something like that. And I suddenly got this call out of the out of the blue, and it was the about the Madeline Masson book. Masson, yes. yes. So Madeline Masson wrote a biography of, of, of called Christine, I think it was called, um, some time ago, maybe in the early seventies, something like that. Anyway, this bloke, came out, yeah th- this this bloke gone at home he said, "I yes, I used to be an s o e and um uh, and I knew christine and i uh, and I was her lover just before she was murdered." <laughs> And, so who was that? At this point, I was—I have no idea, because the, the awful thing is, is in those oh, days, I wasn't the slightest bit interested in the Second Thank World War. Oh, Jim! Oh, I wasn't, no, this isn't a form of life, Disaster. When, I wasn't
2: me, when I wasn't me. Well, I did go down to the Special Forces Club, and there, I met quite a few of the gents who did serve with her or knew her in, in various different capacities. So some of them have been on dates with her, so I might have caught him. Well, this is it. And, you know,
1: I, I read the book after this, because we had a, an old copy on the, um, on, the, on the Penguin shelves at work so I took one home and I I read that that the Madeleine Masson book and that was kind of one of my interests and who knows that might even be one of the kind of very first kind of you know subliminal steps onto the path that (laughs) I ended up taking who knows but I just remember this and and of course now all I you know just thinking about that just makes me just gnarled with frustration that I didn't get who it was, but anyway, I didn't. But anyway, your book's a lot better than Madeleine Messons.
2: Well, I had some advantages because when she was writing, uh, I mean, she basically had one source, which was Andre Kaversky or Andrew Kennedy, as he became known, who was Christine, one of Christine's many comrades in arms, one of the many men whose lives she saved, but I think probably was her soulmate in life as well. Right. And uh, he decided to give his version of the story to Madeleine Masson. Madeline had, she had no access, well, she had, I guess, some access to the National Archives, but they didn't have the files in them. So that none of those files had been released, so she didn't have that information. Um, and even I managed to call up under the Freedom of Information Act, more information and get new files released that hadn't been released even in the 40 years in between the books. Um, so she didn't have that. And she didn't, um, as far as I can see, she didn't interview... Uh, a number of the people who worked alongside her. And I was very, very lucky to be able to catch a number of Christine's colleagues in answer, also family members and so on. So, I mean, it's a very different, it's a very different thing. And actually, one of the interesting things I found was I interviewed, and sadly, Andrew had passed away before I started my research. But, um, of course, I went out to France, interviewed the veterans she served with there. I went out to Poland, had an incredible research trip out there. And one of the people I managed to interview was Andrew's niece, who had inherited in fact, she inherited some for jewelry, and she actually put it on me. So I was wearing her jewelry, feeling very oh, wow. surreal. And yes. uh, yeah, and actually, that that was interesting because um, yeah, you know, I could wear the necklace and the rings, but I couldn't put the bangle on because she was she was strong as a lion, but she was you know like a little bird really. It obviously mm. I couldn't fit it over my knuckles; I didn't want to break it. You know, um, but she also showed me a lot of documentary information, and one of it was this basically a contract between Andrew and various men who had served with Christina. And they, they, they had agreed between them that after her death um, that there would be interest. She was all over the national newspapers just for this sort of flash moment. And, uh, and they thought, oh, there'll be people wanting to write her story. But they thought that this was 1952 and they just thought the world wasn't ready for Christine in 1952. Um, because to really write about her, you have to write about this incredibly powerful, strong, dynamic, sexual, um, high achieving woman. And they, you know, it was still hardly talked about at that point that women served in special operations or, For you know, sure. behind or on the front line. And so they they agreed that this would perhaps sully her reputation. So they called themselves the panel to protect the reputation of Countess Scarbeck. <laughs> and they they refused collectively to talk to any journalists so that nobody could really tell the story that wasn't the story that Andrew was telling. And, uh, and of course, Madeleine didn't have access to these people. None of them were talking. But after they had passed away a lot of them had left documents their relatives felt well things have moved on now you know maybe the Mm -hmm. the net result of this i mean i think probably they were working from honorable motives um i think they meant the best for her although possibly as several of them were her lovers and she saved all their lives pretty much um and some of them were married perhaps there were you know there were other secrets they wanted kept, perhaps, as well. But I think, really, they, they had good intentions. But in any case, the net result was that her story was pretty much covered up, and, and the Masson book is good. You know, it's, it's it's a good basis, but it is just one shade of this woman, and it right. doesn't doesn't really tell the whole story, either the military story or, or her character, really. So it was great to be able to put her back on the map. The
0: military story comes really from her character, doesn't it? I mean, that she just... Everything you read about her, she just sounds like the most the most extraordinary person, the most incredible woman, and and every single twist and turn of what her of what she goes through in her life is um it's all high. I mean, it's I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it. it's all high drama. It's all you know, even the way she even the way she dies. Um, which, which you know, but if, which, which if you were if you were Writing this, did you put that on the end of the story. It's the most... What? How, did, how on earth has this happened? Although perhaps it's inevitable in the way she lived her life. I don't know. So who is she? Where is she from? Uh,
2: okay, what's her family? So, what's
1: her real name? How old is she?
2: Uh, okay. See, I don't think it's exotic. It's just Polish. But her, her real name is Christina Skarbek. And she was... Um, Well, rather wonderfully, everyone has her her name, uh, her date of birth wrong. Um, So if you look on her grave, it's incorrect. And even quite recently, there was a blue, uh, not a blue plaque. That's got it right, because I organized that one. But there's a bronze (laughs) plaque in a little chapel, and that's got her date of birth wrong. But uh, yeah, so she was was born in uh, Poland, but before it was Poland. Well, in between the times it was Poland. So it was still an occupied or annexed nation at that time. Um, And she but she knew in her heart that she was Polish. She was brought up to this in this very patriotic, aristocratic family. Um, But she was never really fully accepted in the higher echelons of Polish society because her mother had been born Jewish and she was from this gold feather family. But she had converted to Roman Catholicism to marry Christina's father. And Christina's father absolutely adored her. He had a son as well, but Christine was the one. Um So he taught her to ride a horse and shoot a gun. And, you know, she was very... Oh, sorry, Wait, so
1: what What was her birthday?
2: Uh, she was born in... I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, <laughs> she was born in 1908. That's right. it. Everyone says 1915. She was born in 1908. Uh, on the 1st of May, perhaps, ironically, Labour Day, oh, it's not, you know, she was an aristocrat. Um and she she had a lot of advantages. She learned, you know, all these skills that would later become quite useful to her in her war service. But she also learnt a lot of resilience because she was discriminated against in society as well. So she learned to depend on herself very much as well. Um, and she became first woman to serve Britain as a special agent in the Second World War. Um, and she was, in fact, the longest serving special agent for Britain, male or female. So she served for over... Six years, about six years, and she served in three different theatres of the war on active duty service. Um, yes, because she's in the Middle East, isn't she, in all Yes, yeah. she started off in um, uh, Poland, Budapest. Yes, yeah, so how did and... she get
1: recruited in the first place? How does that come about?
2: Well, she isn't really recruited. She sort of volunteered, or, well, she doesn't really volunteer. She demands to be taken on. So so in September '39, when... Nazi Germany invades Poland. Um, she's already not at home. She's married to her second husband at that point, and he's a diplomat. He's an extraordinary man as well. And they're on the way to his diplomatic posting in Southern Africa. So as soon as they hear the news, they turn around, they drive back to South Africa, and they they get on a passenger ship to go back and serve their country. But it's immediately wartime conditions. They have to go in a convoy quite slowly and you know, take a diverted route. And so it's a little while before she gets back. And they know by then... Poland has fallen. It mean, never capitulated, but the country is being occupied and annexed again. And so she, she go. They go on to Southampton. Her husband joins the uh, Polish forces, regrouping in France. And he says, "You know, have a few cocktails. I'll see you in a couple of months in London. Look after yourself." And she thinks, "Well, I'm not. I'm not going to miss the action." You know. So within. Days she has made her way to the supposedly secret headquarters of the British secret services, and she's banging on the door and you know, really demanding to be taken on. And that's that's in queue. That's the first memo. Um, is the reaction of these young men? And of course, it's ludicrous. They can't take her on. She's not. She's not British. You know, you have to be British. Join the the um, SIS or MI6 as it was. Um, and of course. She's, well, she's part Jewish. And they think, well, she's obviously insane. She wants to go back into Nazi occupied Poland. That doesn't sound right. And above all, she's a woman. And there are no women in this role. But she has all the attributes they need. I mean, the British are very keen to understand what's going on inside the first occupied country of Europe. Poland. They they want to know how the Germans are organizing, what the systems are, what the troop movements are, in case that gives them a clue to what might happen next. You know, they they need this information, and they have no contact with the fledgling Polish resistance It's very quickly organizing. Um, but Christine has the contacts. She has the languages. She she even knows how to get in and out, sort of under the radar, because when she was a rather bored. Um, Countess married to her first husband. She did a lot of skiing. She was a ski champion, in fact. And uh, she left oh, all the yes, men Oh, yes, in behind the Tatra
1: Mountains, wasn't she? In
2: the Tatra Mountains, yeah. And so she would. She, she got on very well with the Boral people, the mountain people, who are some of the first organising resistors. But just for kicks, she used to smuggle cigarettes across the border just to see if she could dodge all the border guards and so on. So she knows the smuggling routes. So complete gift horse, and they can't say no. But what do you think
1: her... What, what's her motivation to be... I mean, you know, because it's such an unusual uh, all step to go and fight find out SIS headquarters and go bang on the door. I mean, is it because she's a proud Pole? Is is it because she's vehemently anti-fascist? But, you know, what what is it that's motivating her to do this?
2: Well, it is both those things. But I think you have to put yourself into the mindset of a Polish woman. She's raised inside a country that is uh, uh, the area of it is annexed. Her part was annexed. Um, You know, it's divided between Russia and Prussia and so on. And so the the Polish people have inherently always got this idea that one day we're going to be fighting again for our liberation. So she's 10 years old when Poland becomes free, and it's only 20 years when they're bloody occupied again. So it's in her DNA. That first memo describes her as a a flaming Polish patriot and a great adventuress. And that great adventuress is the second part, because, you know, she here is a woman who loves danger. I mean, the book is called The Spy Who Loved because... Um, she loved men. She had two husbands, many lovers. She loved adventure and adrenaline. And most of all, she loved freedom, both for her country and for herself personally. So she has these huge appetites. And ironically, perhaps, it's war that normally is seen as preserve reserve of men or male fighters on the front line that gives her the opportunity that liberates her to live a fuller life. So it's all of those things. Uh, how
0: do you go and knock on MI6's door, the SAS. <laughs> you know, it's all very well saying that. How, because, after all, there, there is a... There is a there is a when war comes. There's the there's the blurred thing between journalism and, and the secret services and all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, and, and, and she falls into that category. So she's, she knows she's doing j- some journalism before,
0: she, right? Okay, because that's after all, um, you know that's Ian Fleming's entry point to to um, uh, in the intelligence services, and I, I imagine he may come up again later um, because after all, your title uh,
2: there is an the t- echo there. Yeah, there, there is, is, an is echo. there is a. I there mean, is something it, we can talk about if yeah, you want later. Yeah, yeah. But, yes,
0: but, I mean, but we, don't, we don't have to, but that's how you go in. Uh, my grandfather was a journalist and then, then ends right. up doing this sort of stuff. Although not nothing like what we're talking about here, but he ends up in the sort of sp- spooky end of things. Um, so is that how she does it? So she's working as a journalist and or knows journalists? or
2: Yeah, she did. She did. A, I mean, we haven't got any of her articles, but, yes, yeah, she was in Journalistic circles. Right. She was making connections. She was probably writing a little bit. She was in Paris before the war. We know some of the people that she had contacts with have contacts with our spooks. So, you know, we don't know what the direct... There's about two or three... Explored it in the book. There are about two or three contacts that could have given her the address, somebody. You know, so we know that's how she got in, but not exactly the route.
0: Um, and then... And they send her off straight away, don't they? uh, uh, Immediately.
2: Yeah, she's in Budapest. She's given this sort of cover as being a French journalist. She spoke perfect French. Um, She spoke English with a a sort of French accent because... um, She went to school in a convent where the nuns spoke French and she wanted to know what they were talking about. So she learned French first very, very well. So um, they sent her in as being this French journalist, sent her into Budapest. But her mission was to go into occupied Poland. And she did ski and she did four of these very perilous missions. And even just the journey, you know, that winter was particularly cold. And in the mountains, it was minus 40 minus I've course. often, I've often made
0: that point on and this I was podcast. wondering how to
2: explain that in a book. How can you convey that?
0: And she's been sent, she's going into Poland, to, what, to take the temperature, to find out what the Germans are up yep. to? To She's to, got t-
2: various specific things to do. So she's taking in um, propaganda that's been written by her third trip. She's taken propaganda actually written by her husband, um, right. her second husband. So she's taking in propaganda to give to the resistance, information to give to them. She's taking in bundles of money because uh, very early on there were all these different uh, resistance groups that later got merged by the this fantastic man, General Stefan Ravetsky, and he uh, merged them into what became the um, AK or the Home Army. Um, but uh, initially there's these different groups. So she's taking in uh, money for them, to help them, but she's also taking in contacts to get radio codes. So she's been bringing out... Uh, Coding material, uh, uh, radio code, she's bringing out microfilm, some of the film footage they've taken, and some of that actually has the potential to change the course of the war. It's extraordinary what they have been recording. And uh, apparently she hid this microfilm inside her leather gloves, went back. Oh, and she also moved around the country. So she spent a couple of, um, I think, over a month on her first mission, first time she went out, just herself going around, hitching lifts, she could, she, one thing she hated doing was cycling. So she was more likely to walk or hitch a lift. And just seeing what the troop movements were, seeing how they were organising inside the country, because that's what the British had also asked her, requested her to bring out. So she did her own observations, but she also brought out the uh, microfilm and information on it from the Polish resistance as well. So that was just her, the start. That's her first area. And doesn't she
1: make contact with her mother?
2: Yeah. So when she when she goes out to Poland, I mean, she's told that for the the first when she arrives, she's just meant to disappear. She's not meant to do anything too obvious. She's just, in case she's being followed, she's just meant to disappear. But what she does and. Uh, Originally, when I was writing this, I was thinking, this is ridiculous, what a terrible woman. But now I'm, you know, mother of 3 growing grown-up daughters. I'm thinking, this is great. She's looking after her mum. So uh, <laughs> she used to walk straight to her mother's house. And, uh, and she would beg, her mother was called Stefania. And uh, she would beg her mother to get out. Her father had uh, predeceased her. She, her friend, Andrei, she'd already met Andrei Kowarski uh, before she went out on her first trip. And um, they were immediately, madly in love with each other. And he was, <laughs> when the Germans invaded, he was actually with the Polish Black Brigade, which was their mechanised division. Uh, yeah. Called after their black leather jackets, he probably looked quite nice in his black leather jacket, I imagine. Um, and he, the reason it, he was in the mechanized division was because before the war, he was another aristocrat, and they had shoot, hunting and shooting parties. And he brought some friends to his estate. Accidentally, one of his friends, city lad, didn't know how to handle a gun, had, had shot it and accidentally shot off one of Andrew's legs. So he has a prosthetic oh. leg from the knee down on one side. Um, but what he can't—he can't ride a horse, he can't do various things, but he can drive this. The mechanized division, and so there was this wonderful story. I managed to get in touch with Paddy Lee just just before he died, actually tragically, and uh, and he knew Christine and Andrew very well. They met in uh, in Egypt in the Middle East in the, in the in the second theater of war that she served in. But uh, he said that Andrew used to tell this story that he was, um, and he used to recount this story to this adoring group of women in you know smoky. Budapest bars and uh, Andrew was leaving this mechanised division as the panzers came rolling in through those muddy well it was quite dry actually that was one of the problems then it was quite a dry summer that first September of 1939 so the the panzers are coming in and suddenly there was an explosion and a cloud of dust and smoke billowed up And, uh, and when that had dissipated the Germans on that occasion had actually fallen back but One of the Polish vehicles was overturned and Andrew was trapped underneath it. And one of his unit went up the hill saying, somebody get a medic. And Andrew just laconically called out, I don't need a a doctor, you blithering idiot. I just need a blacksmith because he just needed to take off the metal part of his false leg. And he carried a spare and he carried on. It was just pinned down by part of his leg. And he had... Uh, eventually being forced back, of course, put into an internment camp just outside Budapest. His mates went on to join the forces in France, but they commissioned him to stay in place and get as many people out of that internship camp as possible to rejoin the Polish forces. And he set up one of the first escape lines, and Christine actually helped him in his escape route work, because she had various contacts with the British that could help. And he helped her smuggling information. Apparently, he whittled a part of the, the wooden part of his leg and hid information inside his leg. So <laughs> I mean, this is in the archives in Cuba, the National Archives. I, I, yeah. you know, like you say, you can make it up. Anyhow, so she was working with him and she said to her mother, I, Stefania, you know, mum, I can get you out. My friend runs an escape line, you know, come with me. But Stefania wouldn't leave. She said, you yeah, know, I converted to Roman Catholicism to marry your father. Um, I'm a countess. They won't touch me. Oh, and God. also, I think the, the key point was um, that she was running a secret school teaching Polish children and she didn't want to leave her students. She refused to leave them. And I, I tried to trace what happened to her. And the, the last record of Stefania was... Um, she went into Paviak prison. Uh, Paviak means Peacock. It's on Peacock Street in Warsaw. Um, horrendous, horrendous place, actually designed by Christina's great, great, great grandfather. And, um, and there's no account of her there. I mean, I searched all of the um, you know, Yad Vashem and all the um, uh, concentration and extermination camp records and some of them disappeared. So it's possible she went there. But most of the prisoners taken to Paviak, who the Germans considered to be Jewish, were just taken out and shot in the Palmyra Forest just outside. That's almost certainly what happened. And although I don't, there is no record in the archives on what happened to Stefania in the end, I believe that Christina knew, because when SOE was founded in July 1940, she was swapped over or brought into SOE and she had to fill in the paperwork and she filled it all in in normal handwriting, except when she comes to her mother, it's the only bit in rather shaky capital letters. She just writes dead. So somebody had got word to her what had happened to her mother. But yes, so she, she did. She went first to her mother and then she got on with her job. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a
0: second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Claire Mully. So she comes back to London and joins SOE after this... Uh, well, no, because no.
1: first, because she, cause she, she gets, she gets, because
2: she gets arrested, doesn't she? In, in
0: well, yes. So, Ziga so Pesh. tell tell us t- t- what, what happens. She gets
2: caught. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the drama doesn't stop. She gets caught several times. So she, um, she is in. So she's going in. It was, I think, it was her her last. Well, it was the last time she went in, and she's been sent in to collect this very specific microfilm, uh, yeah. which is apparently very crucial. So they send in, they send in their best. They send in Christine. Um, but uh, it's now the spring of 41, which is apparently a very wet spring, and she they have to throw their skis away. She's going in with another um, – uh, he's a courier for the Polish resistance. His name was Count Vladimir or Vladimir's Lidochowski. And they're going in together. They've known each other quite well and are, in fact, lovers having been shot at together at another border crossing. and uh, It's a separate story, but anyhow, try and stay focused. <laughs> um, so they're going in together. And uh, that, on that occasion, it, she's, she gets a bug. She gets a, a, not just a cold. She gets quite a flu and she begins to get shaky and she has a very high temperature. And they think, oh, my God, we're not going to be able to do this trek. But she really wants to get this microfilm. So they decide to follow a branch line of a railway line, which is the first mistake, really, um, because they're, uh, one of the German guards, a dog, hears them and barks and sets the alert. And a station master comes out and calls two guards. And so they're under arrest with three men. And, you know, he says, what are you doing? And, of course, they have a cover story. They say, oh, we're trying to get out. We're trying to go the other way. And he says, OK, I'm going to take you to the nearest town. We'll drop you off um, just over that hill at the Gustavo HQ. You can tell them your story. You know, I don't want to hear it. But the, the Lederhofsky, who she's traveling with, is going in to give these promotional papers to two future leaders of the Polish resistance, one of whom is Bor Morawski, who you may have heard of because he's the one that leads the Warsaw Uprising in 44. Yeah. So they, these are very incriminating documents. So they think, oh, my God, you know, what can't happen? You know, we can get caught, we can get shot, but we cannot incriminate these people. And these papers are in a rucksack on Christina's back. So at one point, they have to go over this high bridge over a river that is flooded with these rains and, you know, all the melted snow has gone in there. And she thinks, well, here's, a, here's an opportunity. So she suddenly sort of bows down as if she's buckled her ankle. And Vladimir reaches into the bag and chucks these papers into the river and they are swept away. But now it is very clear that they are you know, doing something for the resistance. And so the stationmaster leaves them under guard, says, all right, you dogs and other much worse words, I am going to get the Gestapo to take responsibility for you. I'll wash my hands. And so so now there's something there. And, and Vladimir later said that he he had some cyanide powder in his pocket and he his biggest concern was how could he share some of that powder, it's a poison powder, with Christina before taking some himself so that under interrogation they wouldn't give anything away. Um, but Christina's thoughts are running in a different direction because she had noticed that these guards were now pulling everything else out of her bag and laying it in the wet grass, apart from some of these bundles of money. And when they found money, they just took it between themselves and put it in their pockets. So she thought, right, these guys, they're motivated by greed. You know, this is, they're corruptible. And she was wearing under her shirt, um, a cut glass necklace that um, actually Vladimir had given it to her as a love token. And she normally wore it under her shirt hidden so that Andrew wouldn't see it apparently. But anyhow, now she pulled it out and she started fiddling with it and she was going, oh, my diamonds, my diamonds. Of course, they were just this is paste, costume jewellery, really. Yeah. But the guards don't know that. One of them shines a torch out and the other one lunged for her necklace. So she pulled it, so the chain broke, and these beads fall into the wet grass. And both guards are on the ground scrabbling around trying to get them. Vladimir knocks the gun away, she knocks the torch away, and they head for the forest. The way Vladimir says it, he says that they um they managed to get to the safety of the darkness of the forest before the bullets started shredding the leaves above their head. And you you do have to have a salt because I looked it all up on a map, and it, it's mainly pine. Not sure you can shred those pine needles, but anyhow, <laughs> you get the idea. So they they, managed to get away, but they, you know, the papers and everything were taken, and although their papers had false names, they had their real photographs, so they knew that they were burnt on that route. So that's why it's her last mission. So they, they eventually came back, and uh, Andrew was waiting for her, and he had been... Warned. So the head of the um, Budapest Police Force is actually another friend because they're aristocratic and they've got all these contacts. And he, his friend has said, look, you know, if I arrest you again for your escape line work, I'm going to have to hand you over to the Germans. Just get out, my friend, now. But Andrew refused to leave till Christina came back. By the time Christina came back, she this flu has turned into a terrible fever. She can hardly stand. She's shaking and sweating. So he says, OK, well, we'll just stay for a night, and get your strength, and then we're out. And that was the second mistake because the Gestapo came at four o'clock in the morning, banging mm. on the door, arrested them both. Andrew's terrified for her. You know, she's, how long is she going to last? I mean, they're taught or told to try and last for at least 24, hopefully 48 hours before they speak to give the people in their circuit chance to disappear um, because they'll realize they're missing. But, you know, how long was she going to last? And he was, they were put in different cells in the police station on Miklos Horthy Street, and he was beaten in the. In the kidneys and in the face, but he kept to his story. But Christine took a different approach, and and I looked it up in the files, of course, and it says um, Christine showed great presence of mind, and they were released. So I was like, you know, what is great presence of mind? What does that mean? Yeah, and uh, um, what it means is Christine decided to make a virtue of her apparent weakness, which was this hacking cough that she had, her fever, and so she bit her own tongue and, and not a little. She bit it hard repeatedly until her mouth filled with blood. And then as she coughed, it looked as if she was coughing up blood, which was the symptom of TB, tuberculosis. I don't know if you know, but, you know, TB is highly contagious. It's carried yeah. by waterborne droplets. So, you know, interrogation and TB do not fit very well together. But Germans chuck her out and thinking correctly that Andrew's her lover, they throw him out as well. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And later in one of the SOE training manuals, it says, um, if you are under interrogation, this is something you can try you can, It actually says you can bite your own t- um bite your own tongue and gums i don't i can 't really see how you can bite your own gums but anyhow that 's what it says <laughs> uh, and hope to be released and this obviously is something that came from Christina
0: oh, I mean, they were goodness. tales
2: and there is a lot more to this story maybe i shouldn 't give the whole lot but um eventually she does get away and she does collect that microfilm and that microfilm is extraordinary. Shall I mention what that is that 's one of that's the first of her incredible well, achievements really. Um,
0: am I right in thinking it's it's Plans for Barbarossa, the beginning of German planning for Barbarossa.
2: You are right, yeah. It shows film footage, the first film evidence of the massing of tanks and troops on what was then the German side of the German-Soviet wartime border and the creation of a series of ammunition and fuel dumps, you know, to clearly to support a land-based invasionary army. And this is the first film evidence that supports that. And, you know, they get it across several borders, or she gets it across several borders, and eventually to the British Air Attaché in Sofia, uh, Sir so Aidan Crawley, later a Tory MP, and uh, he gets it to Churchill. And at that oh point, Churchill's daughter Sarah Oliver, who was an actress, who later wanted to play Christine in a film of her life, but it came to naught because of this group of men who refused to talk about it. That um, she, she she was asked in an, an interview why why do you want to play Christine particularly, and she said because at that point, when Churchill, when this microphone landed on Churchill's desk, he said the spy that brought that that's my favorite spy. So at this point, Christina was Churchill's favorite spy.
0: Yeah. So her, st- her stock was very high at, the, at with that.
2: Very high at that point. And yet, ironically, that's just the sort of preface because then she works in Egypt and the Middle East, but it's really her service in France that makes her legendary, isn't
1: it? She has this sort of slight... Uh, there's a, a cloud of suspicion over her oh, when yes. she's in Cairo, isn't it? And yes. she's sort of frozen out a she bit. She is,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think of that. I mean, so she, no, she has this, this sort dynamic. of the
1: middle years of the war.
2: Yes, so she... Uh, yeah, so my chapter, I think, is ice cold in Cairo. Hold on. Cairo? Ooh. Um... Yeah, uh, well, how are we getting to Cairo
0: from? <laughs> <laughs> what
2: the heck? <laughs> okay, so she's she's got to Sofia. She, um, I mean, she's already crossed several borders with this uh, microfilm and other documentation extreme peril, I must say. And this is the spring of 1941. And eventually, I mean, they know that they're burnt. They know that their papers have been taken. Um They, I mean, it's incredible how she gets across the border first out of Poland um, with the help of the British uh, minister. But anyhow, she, she reached like the ambassador, uh, Sir Owen O'Malley. Um, and then eventually uh, she crosses several other borders. And they're, they're doing this journey in that Oval Olympia that Andrew had stolen from the internment camp. And And I've just got this wonderful picture of her in the car going across these borders and the metal on the car is getting hotter and hotter you know they go from the freezing territory right over they go through Palestine and there's this wonderful photograph of her apparently she insisted on taking some time to walk barefoot on the beaches of Palestine and eventually they get to Egypt and um which is obviously British at that point. And she is.
1: Yes, because she goes through Syria, she, doesn't she? And getting through Syria is not easy because it's fishing.
2: The fishy. whole thing is extraordinary. I mean, and in the spring of 1941, a lot of these countries, certainly in the European end, have fallen in the Nazis just weeks. Uh, maybe when they go through Istanbul, she just avoids being um, blown up in a bomb at her hotel. She goes on further. And, uh, and, and one day they pass through a country that fell just two days after they crossed the border join the Axis. So this extraordinary journey, and that's part of the problem. Um, one of the, because when she arrives in uh, Cairo, she's, she and Andrew put on ice, she is so insulted, so deeply insulted, um, you know, she's frozen out completely. And it turns out the British are investigating reports that she was a double agent. So of course, I looked into this, and there are a number of reasons, and that's actually quite reasonable to suspect that there are factions within the poles at this point. This is this sort of very difficult moment for Poland, but from now on really Um, but there's other reasons as well and the one uh, partly to do with some one of the resistance groups that she had been in contact with had had realized that Poland was um, facing war on two fronts from the Soviets as well as from Nazi Germany and so was playing one side off against the other to an extent and and she was sort of tainted by an early connection there although not everyone was you know Um, but also there were rumors among the Poles because she was serving the British so there was a bit of bad blood there but the the reason I like most was one of them put wrote in the margin. I think uh, she must be a double agent. It said it's the only possible explanation for why she's still alive. And it actually is quite reasonable at that point, given the journey she's just undertaken. But then when the Soviet, you know, when Stalin, um, when Hitler does invade with Operation Barbarossa, um, I mean, it's very clear she wouldn't have been fighting to hand over that material. So, you know, so keen to hand that information over. And she is, um, Brought that out and put back into active service. Claire, how is she able to to
0: talk her way in and out of Vichy Syria? And I mean, what what's going on is she is she incredibly charming? She's is she very beautiful? I, what 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 what's she Beauty and charm. That's not really the key to it. I, mean, I think we're not because how do we explain it? Because because yeah, well
2: beauty can actually be a real problem because it it means that your face may be more memorable. So it can be useful. I mean, she would use beauty and charm. I mean, she was a runner up for Miss Poland, first ever national beauty uh, contest in, in Poland. But it can also be a real problem for a woman because it makes them more distinctive. Yes, and yeah. she had the knack of being able to turn those lights off if she wanted to and anonymize herself in a crowd. That was something she was very good at. So, um, no, it's not. I mean, women do, I think, have a super ability, perhaps, that the men didn't. But it's not their charm. It's not a Matahari, you know, yeah. honey trap type thing. If women have a. Superhero quality that that is gender related that men don't have. It, it's not actually beauty and charm. You know, a lot of the most effective special agents weren't female ones. weren't even particularly beautiful. And Christina could turn hers off and on. Yeah. Um, but it was their just their ability to be overlooked. And underestimated, yeah. I would say. So, um, able bodied men in occupied territory are, especially after the service de travail obligaire came through in France, for example. I mean, that's why they sent 39 women as special agents into France, because uh, men moving around France were immediately suspect. Uh, the men, the French men, had been rounded up. They were sent to work in factories for the Nazi war effort, uh, or sent to Germany to work on the land. Whereas women were moving around by train, uh, by truck, on foot, on bike, all the time to try and keep families going, businesses going. And so they, they, that was the water in which people could swim. So if you're another woman, you're just another woman, yeah. and so women were, you know, disregarded. To, to I mean, not completely. It was incredibly dangerous. It's not like they got an easy ride. Uh, they were picking up people all the time, but it was, it was an advantage to be able to blend in among the other women moving around countries and crossing borders.
1: And also, Claire, she, she had this extraordinary face, didn't she? I mean, she, she looked quite elfin.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, in 1930, she was a star of beauty, so a runner-up of the first ever Miss Poland beauty competition. Um, so, obviously, she had some beauty. On the other hand, people also say that she was able to switch it off. I mean, we do know occasions where she... Uh, there's one occasion where she's on a train inside occupied Poland and she's smuggling documents to give to the resistance... And an, a Nazi officer gets on. Everyone gets into a carriage. Everyone sort of moves up, and she just thinks, "Oh my God! You know what we're going to do? There's checks coming, and it, it turns out they're those not just looking at travel documents. She can sell from the sounds they're very systematic. They're going through people's bags, papers. But what to we'll do? She thinks, well, maybe I could throw them out the window, but I'll get caught. Maybe I could jump on the train, but I'll probably get killed." And she looks at the officer. And she thinks, well, like, you know, maybe there's another opportunity. She gives him that little look. I'm trying, oh, sorry, I shouldn't attempt to do that with you. But um, it works very well for the German officer. And she says, oh, i got this packet of black market tea. I shouldn't have it. Will you look after it for me? And he says, of course, my dear. He's very gallant, puts it in his uh, attache case. She has to spend two hours with the rest of the poles giving a filthy look to talk to this man. And they get to the arrival station. he, You know, they go and she doesn't even ask for it. And then he says, oh, my dear, you forgot something. And he gives it to her with a little smile, and she off she goes and gives it to the resistance. I mean, she's very good at her job, and if if charm and beauty is going to do the job, she will use it. It's right. just another weapon, but it's right. only one. You know, she had right. she's very highly skilled. She gets you know after she gets the Middle East, she becomes one of our most highly trained female special agents. Um, the course she excelled in was the silent killing course, but her best weapon was actually her brain, because yeah. what she excels in is talking her way in and out, like. When she bit her tongue to get out of um, the interrogation, there are so many occasions, uh, incredibly thrilling, a rescue operations she undertakes when no one else will do it, just using her quick wit. So that's really her her skill.
1: Because she manages to spring Zan Fielding and and um, Francis Kametz out of prison, doesn't he? I mean, I mean, this is this is this is absolutely. But this story could,
0: that that story in itself is could be an entire podcast episode. It's the most it's the most amazing story, and. Uh, it completely falls into the um, uh, uh, stranger than fiction category, doesn't it? It's it's extraordinary. So this is when she's been she's been trained by S.O.E. She's sent to France. It's all part of the sort of rollout for D-Day. Yeah, the only it?
2: women parachuted to France from North uh, Africa. as a courier. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she's sent to be courier to this uh, mm. network, the Jockey, Jockey Network, which is run by Francis Commerce. So that's in southern France. And that is really working to make preparations for D-Day in the south, which happened, as you all know, a couple of weeks after D-Day in the north, mm. mainly American, but international forces coming into the south. And they've got very clear instructions at this point of which pilots to take down, which roads to block, you know, which trees to fell. Uh, and which routes to keep open yeah. for the Americans coming through. So that's she's being sent in as a courier to support France's commerce as part of that network. Also, she's got wireless operating skills. Speeds so are not that fast actually, but that's you know, everyone had this secondary, they they trained mm. them in everything just in mm. case. So yeah, so she's she's dropped um the only woman to parachute in from North Africa, uh, parachutes in one of only two. Uh, Polish women to parachute behind enemy lines and I'm now writing about the next one. So that is that is really <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> totally different. Absolutely amazing woman. Um anyhow, so Christine goes into France and 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 you know she she's only there for, you know, a relatively brief period of time. We're talking weeks. And yet she has the achievements are absolutely extraordinary. So she she makes I mean, I can't I can, but I don't know if we've got time to go into all of it. But she she makes the first contact between the French resistance on one side of the Alps and the Italian partisans on the other side of the Alps. And she sort of hears a gun battle and she circles round, and she manages to get to the Italian commander. And uh, she actually brings back, we've got in the Little Heart Military Archive in uh, King's College in London, we've got the note she brings back with his request for ammunition, uniforms and packed meat. That's what he needs to keep going. So she makes the first contact there, which is of hugely strategic importance in advance of the Allied troops coming in. Single-handedly secures the defection of an entire Nazi German garrison on this strategic pass in the Alps called the de Larch Pass. Um, So she, she climbs up this mountain. On her own, she's heard that there are Polish conscripts as part of the garrison force up there. And incredibly riskily, she ties a white and red scarf in her hair, the colours of Poland. So she, I mean, she stands out. She's deliberately making herself stand out. She hopes they'll see her and hesitate before they fire. And they do. And so she goes out and apparently she argued with them for over an hour. And eventually they agree there's enough of them to overwhelm the garrison. And at the right moment, which is one week later of specific time on a specific day, they will do that. They will uh, defect themselves, come down with all the arms, the small arms that they can take. And they took out the breech blocks and disabled, or you know, whatever they did to disable the bigger guns up there in the garrison. And then the men come just after. Went, once the poles have come down, um, the uh, French and the British then go up and uh, negotiate with the garrison commander. He's not got a leg to stand on because she's done all the work already, really. But they God. they officially take the surrender, but it's all her work. So I mean, absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. And then and then there's the rescue of these guys. So yeah. <laughs> So this is why she's so highly honoured. I mean, she got the George Medal. She got the OBE. um, She got the Quad de Guerre from the Poles. And really, she should. I mean, she she got the uh, civilian equivalents to the military medals that she should have got. She should have got the same military medals. But of course, you know, one of these women said we weren't you know, there's nothing remotely civil about what I did. These these women doing exactly the same work at that point. Um, but they were given the civil equivalents, but they're, they're at a very high level. So she is one of the most highly trained, longest serving, and one of the most effective agents, male or female.
1: And then, so what? Just very briefly. I mean, we know we, we talked about her grisly end at the very beginning, but 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 what happens to her? After? Well, she's got no ponytail. Well, so and to. actually,
2: the British were appalling. You know, this is not our greatest moment. But um, in the files, the last memo in the files, and I'm, I'm quoting. So there is a bigger context to this, but but it doesn't change. This is the essential point of that memo. It says she is no longer wanted. And so six years of service directly for the British Crown. Um, halfway through the war, she's given temporary British, British citizenship, but that uh, runs out. She's actually in Cairo at the end of the war again, and uh, they, they dismiss her in Cairo. And I mean, not with nothing. They, they gave her, I think it was three months salary, it was a hundred pounds, which was, you know, which was a decent sum of money, but it's not gonna last that long in Cairo. And she knows that she can't go back to Poland because of course, Poland is left, the Allied country left with a communist Soviet-backed dictatorship. And they're rounding up these soldiers. They're rounding up the resistance leaders. And the British actually should have known, well, they did know that she couldn't go back to Poland because in the files, there's a slightly redacted document, but you can see, what they did was they swapped her and andrew's names earlier on a couple of years earlier on for the names of two nkvd agents so this is the precursors of the kgb the nkvd so they swapped her names for two russian spy names so the soviets know they've got her name if she goes back she will be killed her brother who served in the resistance uh, he died in a communist prison in the first year of the peace of tuberculosis we think a respiratory disease is all we know so she knows she can't go back the british say We're going to give you honours. give you the George Medal. It's very prestigious, the OBE. And she refuses to accept them from a country, she says, that after six years of service, putting her life on the line won't even give her British citizenship. That's the honour she most wanted And, um, and ongoing work and service worthy of her experience. And she basically shames the British government. They say, oh, God, yes, quite right. And they give her British citizenship. But even then, it's sort of second class citizenship. She fought that battle. So there isn't two tiers now. That's because of her. Um, but they, they don't give her the work that she, you know, all of the men are redeployed and against her name in the files. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's just she's offered a little bit of secretarial work. This is not her skill. Um, all the men are working in the British occupation zone. Nothing for her. Czech girl at Harrods. She works in cafes. She ends up getting a job as a bathroom assistant on the passenger ship So when she at the start of the war, she comes back from South Africa. She's a countess first class at the end of the war. After all that service, she's scrubbing toilets on these same sort of ships, you know, the Stirling Castle. And um, and that's where, unfortunately, she meets the man who will kill her. It's such an awful it's end, horrendous.
1: Isn't it? It's horrendous. It's
2: just... Uh, yeah, it is right. I'm glad you said that, because some people said to me, oh, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword, or whatever. I just think it's totally inappropriate.
1: N- no, no, it's absolutely nonsense. If anyone earned the right to have a long and happy ongoing on, on, on it, yeah, it life, had, she it's She had her.
2: plans and ambitions, you know. She was talking about getting a place in Kenya or a dairy farm. You know, she had ideas.
0: No, when, and she'd have been brilliant, yeah. and I'm sure she'd have come yeah, she good. Wasn't, I mean, she wasn't. She wasn't going to be defeated, was she? No, but but there's also the sort of grim, grim inevitability of the way the British state treats the people that it uses, and that they end up, they end up, um, you know, on Skid Row or or, or a long way off where they ought to be, where the trajectory should have taken them. And I, I, I mean, I did. I said at the start, sort of, it, it, her end feels inevitable. That's why it feels inevitable to me. It feels like this is the, this is what happens to people, who, who. Come from come a great risk, great personal risk, do all these extraordinary things, and then the
2: British state drops in like a hot brick as soon as it possibly can I mean this is her skill ironically at the end of the war is what sets makes it life so difficult because yeah. she is she doesn't fit into boxes, yeah you know she's too female to be a soldier, which is quite handy yeah. in the war, but afterwards, no use at all you're a woman you can't yeah. be a soldier, you know she's too. She's too Polish to be British, but she's too British now to be Polish. Yeah. She's too Jewish to be Catholic, but actually she converts to Protestantism so that she can get divorced and marry her next one. You know, she's she doesn't fit into any box and nobody knows how to place her. Well, she is,
0: and she's brilliant as well. And the, uh, the, yeah, the, she's absolutely the, that brilliant. clearly generates d- jealousies and uh, 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 animus for some people, doesn't it? Is the mm. it's the thing.
2: So yeah, so you're absolutely right, Al, and I think it's really important that you raise it because it is very important that we recognise how appalling Britain was at the end of what the- you know she was. She was Polish to Polish. She was female. And of course, she's part Jewish. And after the Camp David bomb, you know, that's another real red flag. So she is treated appallingly. I have to say, though, the Polish authorities, I mean, this is even I mean, at the end of the war, she's never going to get a Polish medal because it's a Soviet-backed regime. They're not giving prizes, you know, quite the opposite. But she still doesn't have... A, a Polish medal. She still doesn't really have that recognition, you know. So she's treated shabbily all around, really.
1: Truly, she's a she. She's one of the truly remarkable. Yeah heroines to have emerged out of the Second World War, isn't she?
2: She is. She's absolutely fantastic. She's really inspiring. You know, and I haven't written that many books. I'm sure I mean look at your output and I think, gosh, I'm so slow. I need to have written all these books. But I also do, I think this history is so important. Yeah. I'm trying to do other things as well. I am. Um like I've got her a blue plaque. It took six years of lobbying, had to get the Times on side. They did a campaign. Wow, and eventually, well you know, we unveil this blue plaque. of course, COVID, nobody is allowed to go, but anyhow, so it's there. So go and see that. We've got her um, a bronze bust in the Polish club and we've just got the National Portrait Gallery's taken uh, an original portrait of her. So she's, I mean, she should be in that pantheon of great, people part of our history so, so we're getting i think we're slowly getting there
0: where's where's the blue plaque claire for when i next go and venture into town where am i going yeah, so it's
2: in kensington at her last address which was at the time it was the shelbourne hotels where she lived okay. after the war which was then run by the polish welfare association now it's number one lexington gardens hotel okay. so you can see it on the
0: outside there. fantastic thanks everyone for listening we've been talking to um uh, claire mully um uh about the the spy who love well thanks everyone for listening we'll see you again very soon bye bye cheerio